Psychology in Action podcast. For this episode, we had the chance to speak with Dr. PJ Lamberson at UCLA, who does a lot of work on computational modeling as it applies to a wide variety of contexts, which includes epidemiology, like the COVID-19 outbreak, as well as social networks. A lot of this episode will cover mathematical concepts related to epidemiology and how we might understand how diseases like COVID-19 would be spreading. We know a lot about contagion, and we have done, and even more so in the past, say, you know, five or 10 years with the, all, everything that's happened with the internet and mobile devices and so forth, we have so much more data. We can really understand exactly how, what these contact networks tend to look like. And all of that data and science and theory that's been developed has taught us a lot about what we can do to try to contain the spread of a disease like this. We spend much of this podcast talking about actual physical viruses like COVID-19, but we also talk about social phenomena and what it means to go viral or for something to spread in our social networks as well, and how those two models might be similar and how those models might also be different. Mathematically, if we think about it, like each contact you have with an infected person from a virus, for a virus, it's the likelihood of that infecting you is, is independent of how many previous contacts you've had before. Like every time you shake someone's hand who's got a cold, it's just like another roll of the die to see whether or not you get sick. But it doesn't matter if you mm-hmm. happen to get lucky the last four times. The fifth time, you're just taking another risk all over again. Yeah. Whereas with um, a product, you know, if someone recommends it to me the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fact that that fifth person is recommending it to me, there are four other people before them, that really increases the likelihood that that fifth contact makes a difference. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast feed on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, a number of other places. It's also available on the Psychology in Action website. Hi, my name is PJ Lamberson, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Communication at UCLA. My research focuses on modeling social networks, contagion, and collaboration. So what got you interested in modeling social networks in the first place? I, I took a kind of roundabout academic career path. I started out being interested from, I, really like from a young age, I was interested in mathematical modeling. I had an uncle who was a mathematical modeler who did biology, and I kind of always wanted to do that. Um, as an undergraduate, I got interested in pure mathematics. I ended up doing my PhD in pure math. And then by the time I finished my PhD, I decided to wanted to go back into applied mathematics, more modeling. And um, I got interested in modeling social science really actually through, at the time she was my girlfriend. Now she's my wife. She's a political science graduate student that I met in graduate school. And I kind of started through her learning a lot about social science that I really didn't know that much about before. Um, Ultimately, I ended up getting a postdoc at the University of Michigan, working with the Ford Motor Company, thinking about how innovation spread, and they were interested in how hybrid vehicles were going to spread, and that's kind of what got me into the whole contagion um, and inevitably led to social networks. That's such an interesting sort of path that you took there, and in the context of something like a virus or going viral in social media, there seems to be this consistent concept of a tipping point, and what does that mean in, in these contexts? Yeah, so tipping point is in, interestingly works also in kind of two different ways in terms of social phenomenon versus uh, sort of like a virus. Um, so for a virus to spread, there basically have to be some kind of 
important conditions met. And those conditions depend on a few different things. They depend on characteristics of the virus itself. That is kind of like how infectious it is, how likely, if I, if I come into contact with somebody who is infected, how likely am I to become infected? Um, and how long a person is in, infected or infectious once they become infected. Those are kind of two key um, attributes of the disease itself. And then it also depends on attributes of the social network that it's spreading and how connected are people basically. Um, but once you have those conditions met, if you have sort of a connected enough network, an infectious enough virus um, that lasts long enough, then even from just a few initial people, this, that virus will spread. And so when we think about a tipping point um, in terms of that, that virus, the tipping point is a function of these parameters, the connectivity of the population and the infectiousness of the disease and the duration. And that's where like, if we're talking about like COVID-19 right now, you hear all this stuff about, well, we have these huge policies about social distancing. So social distancing is meant to cut those connections, reduce the connectivity of the network. And um, if you could reduce the connectivity of the network enough, you could push that down below this tipping point so that uh, it would actually, the, the virus would stop spreading and start to, to die out. And that's kind of ultimately the goal of policies like that. Um, and in epidemiology, typically the equations will use something like R0 or R0 as a way of understanding um, whether a virus is spreading or whether it's um, getting contained. And so is the concept of R0, is that very similar to this idea of a tipping point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was talking about basically R0 without using that word earlier. So when I was saying for mm -hmm. a disease, what we're thinking about um, kind of crossing this tipping point to get something to spread depends on these contacts and infectivity and duration. Those are the parameters that determine the R0 or R0 of a disease. And so the tipping point is getting those parameters that actually the, the product of those three, so contacts times infectivity times duration, getting that up above one is what determines whether or not a disease spreads. And once that R, R0 falls below one, then a disease starts to, to die out. For a social phenomenon, you can also talk about something analogous to R0, but again, there's this other tipping point that's in terms of just how many people you have um, that are doing something. So it's contact times infectivity times duration? Yeah, so just to be totally precise about it. So contacts, when we say contacts, we mean how many people does each person come into contact with per some unit of time. So um, like, let's say how many people do you come into contact with every day on average? Um, infectivity is again, this like probability that you become infected if, if you come into contact with somebody who is themselves infected. And then duration is how long you remain infected um, before you recover. And uh, when I say that R0 depends on those three parameters, I really mean that um, in our kind of a simple mathematical model of disease spread, um, so people have heard now starting to hear about like SIR models and SIS models and things like that. So these are the, these are the basic fundamental mathematical tools of mathematical epidemiology um, are these models that are referred to by these acronyms, which stand for things like susceptible, infected, recovered. Um, and those are the three kind of states that people can be in in these models. You can be susceptible to a disease, you can be infected with the disease, or you can be recovered from it. 
So mm -hmm. in those models, R0 depends on these parameters. And that's uh, where that kind of tipping point comes from. And I mean, there's so many, it, they're very simple models, but they have like really, I think, profound implications and really kind of cool insights into how things spread and how you would stop them spreading. And Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. What are some of the other ways that we can mitigate the spread of this virus? You know, we've, we've already discussed a little bit about how social distancing might affect this particular network. How are common practices interfacing with the spread of COVID? Yeah, sure. So maybe it would be helpful to kind of walk through step-by-step step a little bit the, the mathematics of this, of these epidemiological models. I think that, mm -hmm. um, and, and at least that's one of the places where maybe I have some specialized knowledge that could be helpful to people that are not getting elsewhere. So if we think about uh, this, let's say the SIR model. So the, the SIR model assumes that people can be susceptible, infected, or recovered from the coronavirus. Uh, one of the reasons why we're not sure 100% that the SIR model would be the right model for this is that we don't know that people who recover from the coronavirus, if they are definitely immune to it or not. In the SIR model, that is an assumption of the model. Mm. Um, it's possible that ultimately they become susceptible again, or maybe they immediately become susceptible again. We don't really know that yet, but um, that won't change too much the discussion that I, I want to, to walk through now. So the way that this model works, you think about a person who is infected with the, with the coronavirus, okay? So they come into contact with a certain number of people per day. Um, let's call that C for their number of contacts, okay? So some of those people that they come into contact with will already be infected and other people won't, right? Um, they can only infect people who are not already infected. And in the basic model, we assume that the people we come into contact with are just totally randomly drawn from the population. We don't have a social network, really. We just randomly meet people. Um, that's a super simplifying assumption. It tends to work pretty well when you think about actually just local geography. Ultimately, it doesn't work well at the global structure, but we can sweep that under the rug for right now. So, um, so my infected individual contacts C people per day. And so that if we're pulling those at random from the population, the, the fraction of those people who should be susceptible is the number of susceptible people in the population divided by the total population. That's just the fraction of susceptible people, right? If there's, if 90% of people don't have the, haven't had the virus, then 90% of my contacts should be susceptible people. So I've got C times the percentage of susceptible people in the network. For each one of those contacts, uh, there's a probability, which is the infectiousness of the disease. That's the probability that each one of those individual people becomes infected. We usually call that I. So now we've got C times the fraction of susceptible people times I. That's my total number of people I infect in a given day. And I repeat that for D days, where D is the duration of the infection. So we got C times, we'll call it S over N, the S being number of susceptible people over N, the total population, times I times D. That is the reproductive number of my disease. That's for my given infected person, how many people will they infect before they recover? Okay. Now, uh, and that, that's what you might call the, the R naught or the R zero. 
usually when we talk about R0, we make a further assumption about things, which is that we're early enough in the contagion that um, not very many people are, have been infected yet. So almost everyone we come into contact with will be susceptible. So we can kind of ignore that S over N term because it's like basically 100% of people are infected. So now the equation just becomes contacts times infectivity times duration. So if you think about that equation, right, and you think about trying to reduce that R naught, that R zero, bring that product CID down, you can think about reducing C, which you can do through something like social distancing. So that's gonna be cutting contacts. Every time you cut a contact, you cut down the number of potential people that that infected person could infect. And so that reduces that, um, that basic reproductive number. You can think about reducing the infectiousness. So, Wearing a mask can do two different things. Um, and it depends on who the wearer of the mask is. So I'm infected and I start wearing a mask and now I come into contact with somebody at the grocery store or walking around my neighborhood. Where, when I wasn't wearing that mask, the likelihood that that person became infected would, was quite a bit higher than now. Now I have the mask, it's reducing the, how much of that virus is coming out of my you know, mouth and nose and so, um, even though I still am having the same number of contacts, I might still be going to the grocery store just as much. It's reducing the likelihood that those contacts become infected. That's driving down that parameter I. Similarly, if people who are susceptible are wearing those masks, that's also reducing the likelihood that those susceptible people become infected. And so that's driving down the, the, um, the infectivity, the, uh, that parameter I. When you think about reducing the duration, um, that's going to be something where you might have things like antiretroviral um, drugs or something that might actually help with the recovery of somebody, getting them feeling better faster. So those are kind of three ways we could think about these different parameters, these different measures in terms of reducing the, the likelihood of spread. Um, the other couple of things that come up a lot are, first of all, there's this concept called herd immunity that we hear a lot about. So sometimes people um, in fact, like in the early days, uh, purportedly the UK was thinking about this strategy of combating the virus where they basically just protected the most vulnerable populations and then let everybody else get it until enough people had had it, that there was enough immunity built up in the population that it would die out. That's this idea of herd immunity, that you have enough immune people that it should die out. They quickly realized that that was a bad idea because the number of people that you have to have infected to reach herd immunity implies like a huge number of deaths, even if um, those people are not super vulnerable. So they, they stopped that policy. But um, ultimately, I mean, in one way or another, we're trying to achieve herd immunity with the, any of the disease, whether it's through people actually becoming infected and recovered or through a vaccine. So we go back to that equation where we had, uh, we had our C times I times D, but we also had this parameter, the fraction of susceptible people, what fraction of people in our population are susceptible to the disease, that's where herd immunity comes in because as a disease starts to spread, uh, more and more people become infected, which means that fewer and fewer people are susceptible. So that fraction of susceptible people in the population goes down. And eventually, if you have enough people become infected, there's so few susceptible people left that most of the people the infected person runs into are not susceptible to the disease. And so again, uh, R0 could go below one. But uh, when people say like, well, yeah, but 
you know, you, they have to have a lot of people become infected for that to work. That's true because if let's say that the let's say that are not when almost everybody is susceptible is say like three, which is maybe a ballpark reasonable estimate for COVID. Maybe that's a little on the high side, but simple for our math. So let's say it's three. Okay, then we have to have the fraction of susceptible people in the population be less than one third in order for three times one third to be less than one, which means that you have to have more than two thirds of the population have been infected already, which, you know, two thirds times the number of people in the US times the probability of dying if you have COVID is a lot of people. So you don't want to just, you don't want to get to that herd immunity point by just letting everybody get infected. That's, that's a, probably a really bad idea. Um, Another way you can reduce that fraction of susceptible people, though, is by giving a vaccine that can take people sort of immediately from the susceptible pool into the immune pool without having to go through being infected. And so in the long run, you know, we want to to do that. The other thing, and this is, I think, a also very important point that's been glossed over a little bit, is that um, just because the basic reproductive number is below one doesn't mean that like we just turned the virus off instantly, right? You know, if we have, let's say the current number is 100,000, okay? And let's say somehow magically today, we were able to take R0 down below one to let's say a half. Like that would be awesome. We're going from, that would be like a huge difference. Well, just because R0 is now a half doesn't, things are still actually, pretty bad because we start with 100,000 people. Now those 100,000 people, they, they're not on average each infecting, it's not growing, it's gonna decrease, but it means that in the next step, there'll be 50,000 new infections because when R0 is a half, that means in, on average, each person infects half a person or another way of thinking that is each two people infect one. So those 100,000 people infect 50,000 people and those 50,000 people infect 25,000 people and those people infect 12,500 people and so on and so forth before the thing dies out. And, you know, if you, if you actually go through the mathematics of that, from that initial 100,000 people, you end up with 200,000 people infected. And so um, even that is not good, right? You, it's not good enough in some ways to just get R0 below one. Um, so that's, it's grim mathematics, but it's also something else that I think comes when once you go through the math, you realize all of a sudden, like, okay, there's we have to be much more aggressive about this than what we might initially think. So that might point to then, like, let's say, for instance, we have done such an amazing job of getting R0 down to let's say it's now half. Um, so each person is infecting half a person, basically. Yeah. Then that would, with the math that you're just describing right now, would really point to the need for really continued diligence with a lot of the same kinds of measures we would otherwise be using in order to keep driving that R0 even lower. So continued wearing masks, continued social distancing, continued um, really good personal hygiene and hand washing. Yeah, absolutely. So we want to continue, in, in some ways we want to attack like every different facet that we can. So we want to keep R0 as low as possible. We want to, given that people are going to continue to be infected, we need to make sure that those people who are infected have the greatest chance of survival as possible. So that means things like making sure we have enough ventilators, making sure the hospital capacity is not overrun, making sure that people who are becoming infected are the, um, you know, not people in nursing homes who are especially vulnerable to, to dying if they are infected. 
Um, all those different things we want to have to sort of still be doing at once. And, and within those models, sometimes you get something like a super spreader. And so what is, what is a super spreader and how does, that, how does that play into this concept of the tipping point or R0? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So in the simplest framework for these models, we don't have a super spreader. Um, in those simple models, we kind of assume that everybody has on average the same number of contacts, roughly speaking. Um, another, like, there's more precise versions of it, but basically the kind of the number of contacts that people have is sort of assumed to be like approximately normal in a way. That, that's what happens if you just kind of have people be coming into contact with each other kind of totally at random. For that kind of a distribution, people, there's not that much variability in a distribution like that. That is to say that like most people are pretty close to the average. And so um, what that means is that in these models, you don't have uh, people who have like tons and tons of contacts. Um, and that was, that, that's a great assumption in some circumstances, um, but it can also be a really bad assumption in other circumstances. And then the circumstances where it's a bad assumption is where you have individuals who for one reason or another have way more contacts than other people. So if you're thinking about COVID-19 spreading in New York City, um, if you have someone who's like a barista at a busy Starbucks, uh, get that in the early days, you know, they may come into contact with like 2000 people a day or something, way more than the average person. And so that fact uh, makes the, the old school original SIR model not a very good approximation to, to reality. What we've found out when we kind of ramp up those models and add network structure to them is that the existence of those super highly connected people make the tipping point for R0 much lower. So you don't actually even have to have an R0 that's above one anymore to get something to spread in a network like that. Um, because basically like even if something's not very contagious, once you hit one of those Starbucks baristas, <laughs> a bunch of people are gonna become infected um, no matter what basically. And so one of the reasons why kind of like urban environments and places where people are not only just more connected, but also where there's kind of this higher variability and connectivity um, are really difficult places to, to combat a virus spreading. One of the things that has happened, you know, early on was that basically air transportation in uh, the U.S. was pretty quickly cut for the most part. You know, there's very little um, like large-scale geographic travel after, I forget what the day was, but basically around the time that, you know, Trump kind of declared this uh, a national emergency, we've really stopped having people flying all over the country very much. And those long-distance trips are what keeps clustering coefficients low, the clustering coefficient of a person. And that's basically what fraction of an individual's friends are friends with each other. And if you think about that kind of geometrically, you know, you have a person at the center and you have uh, their friends that are sort of these star around them. And you're thinking about how many of those friends are connected to each other. So you're, you're kind of asking like how many closed triangles are there around that individual and how many open triangles are there. Cutting those uh, long distance ties increase the clustering coefficient for this network of that's relevant to COVID spread that is physical contact network, which 
for, for viruses, an increased clustering coefficient reduces the spread and tends to keep a virus contained in kind of more of a local area. So that's why you might have, tend to have like hotspots rather than um, where, at, rather than in the earlier days where things were just kind of like bubbling up all over the place. So the idea of doing something like social distancing measures would be to limit those ties where you have long distance connections between these networks and therefore the clustering coefficient would get higher, reducing Absolutely. the spread. Absolutely, yeah. So you're you're doing two things at once. You're reducing the average connectivity of the network. You're taking just taking connections out, but at the same time, the connections that are remaining tend to be really clustered ties. Like, you know, I hang out with the three other people in my household, and also my in-laws. We all hang out with each other and only each other. So that's like a totally clustered network of people, and um, that's if. Now, if one of us gets infected, we're probably all going to get infected here, but it's so contained that it's not going to go, you know, beyond that. So we just had all this discussion around how the RIS model would potentially apply to COVID. But again, one really important piece you mentioned was that it assumes that people can't get infected again, right? And so in the hypothetical situation that people could get infected a second time, is there a replacement model that would work a lot better for that kind of disease spread? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and depending on exactly how things work, it would change exactly which model, but the, the two kind of simplest variants are the, there's what's called the SIS model, which is stands for susceptible infected susceptible, which means that after you're infected, you just become susceptible again. That's roughly the model that applies to something like the common cold. Like you recover from the common cold, you can get it again pretty quickly. Um, uh, another model that's probably more likely to apply to, to the coronaviruses is what's called the SIRS model. So susceptible, infected, recovered, susceptible, which means that you're, for a while, you're immune, you're in the recovered state, but then eventually you become susceptible again. The um, kind of unfortunate feature <laughs> of prediction of both of those models is that uh, ultimately, you end up with what's called an endemic state of the population of the of the contagion, which means that it never goes away. You just end up with some fraction of people, like kind of kind of some kind of equilibrium number of people who are infected all the time. Then, like like with cold, like common cold, like there's just I don't know what the percentage is, but at any given time in the world, you know, 10% or 20% or 15% or 5%. I don't know what it is, but some fraction of people have a cold and it just keeps going, it's not going away. Um, and that's certainly a potential future reality with the coronavirus um, if there's not a long-term immunity conferred by either a vaccine or by previously becoming infected. Both SARS and MERS had similar or not, maybe a little bit lower, but we were able to contain both of those, but we were not able to contain this one. Mm. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah. Um, one of the things that, at least from my perspective, is about, about SARS and MERS is that uh, I think it was incredible that we were able to contain those in the first place. I think that that was a huge public health challenge and the fact that we managed to do it is pretty amazing because when they do have an R0 that is around the level that we have, that we saw for those diseases and that we see for the coronavirus, um, thankfully, yeah, it was a little bit lower, but uh, it's, very, very difficult because of this kind of super spreader phenomenon that we have in today's highly mixed social networks. It's just very hard to stop something. Um, 
there, the things that helped with SARS and MERS uh, are a couple of different things. First of all, with MERS, you tended to be way more sick. Um, and so being worse off uh, means that you, an infected person has less contacts. You know, um, they're not going to work, they're not going to movies, they're not getting on an airplane, they're like at home, laying in bed, miserable, really bad off. Um, because the coronavirus, at least in many cases, is not, you know, there are a lot of people who get the coronavirus who are not that sick, um, that they're able to just go about their business and keep infecting people is an unfortunate feature of this virus, which makes it much more likely to, to spread. And um, in relation to, to SARS and MERS as well, we also, my understanding of the latest science is that we're pretty sure at this point that you can spread the coronavirus before you become symptomatic at all. And so, so one of the things that we can do, which I didn't mention when I was talking about the, the SIR model, is contact tracing. So the way contact tracing works is that when a person becomes infected, you find out that they're infected, and you immediately go back, you have them sort of think back for a few days, how, who are all the people that you've come into contact with? And you go find all those people and you isolate them immediately. You know, they go into quarantine. That is much harder to do when a person doesn't know that they're infected for a while before that they actually find out whether they're still infectious during that time period. Because, you know, they're just out there mixing around the population and um, you're going to have uh, many more people becoming infected that maybe you don't even know who they are. You know, you're on the subway, you're in a coffee shop, you're all kinds of places. Whereas with SARS or MERS, you know, you thought, well, maybe I've got SARS, I'm staying home. <laughs> um, and so you maybe had some contacts, but not that many, not so many that you couldn't track them all down. And that's what people did really amazing job of doing. The public health officials back with SARS and stuff was like they did, um, you know, massive testing, massive contact tracing to to find all those people that you'd come into contact with and isolate them. And that was able to, to stop this, the spread. One of the things I'm interested in is understanding how mathematical models can be applied to social science and what some of the inherent limitations might be. Yeah, I think that modeling in general from, I have an admittedly biased perspective, but is a really important component. And there's kind of, from, from my view, there's a little bit of a, a dance that goes back and forth between, you know, theory and empirics whenever we're doing science. And so we need to be thinking about, uh, you know, in, in its basic form, science of any type, social science or physical sciences, proceeds by formulating a hypothesis and that has some kind of causal theory about why that hypothesis should be true. And then thinking about, well, what's the data that we should collect to go out and test that hypothesis. And the part where mathematical modeling comes in is that uh, sometimes when someone formulates a theory and hypothesis that's done just kind of rhetorically, we're just thinking like, okay, here's what I think happens and here's why I think it should happen. But we know from just like decades and decades of experience as humans that sometimes that, that, that step where we say this, this causal theory should give rise to this hypothesis isn't necessarily right. Like our brains aren't totally capable of reasoning perfectly about complex social phenomenon. And so modeling allows us to really make precise what our theories are and what the predictions of those theories are and what the assumptions behind those predictions are. So that when we 
come up with that relationship between theory and hypothesis, it really kind of has some meat behind it. And we, it helps guide then how we might go about testing it, what data we need to collect, what assumptions, again, we're going to be making when we collect that data. And um, I think just allows us to have a more precise and rigorous way of moving forward. So when you, when you think about applying mathematical models to social phenomena, what are some of the metrics you might use when you are computing a model of how people are interacting in a social network? In networks particularly, there are a number of things that we tend to look at. The first kind of way we might think about is what is the structure of the network itself? So if we think about people being connected basically by a web, and what defines the relationships in that web in, in network jargon, we call these the links or the connections or the edges that go between the objects or the nodes in our, in our network. Um, you know, there's just a billion ways we can define those links. Uh, even if we think about just a, pop, a particular population, like say students at a university, those students can be connected by friendships, they can be connected by classes that they share in common, they can be connected by um, digital networks like who they've emailed recently or who they have talked to on the phone, or if you're interested in public health, it might be who they've had sex with or who they've come into close physical contact with in the past couple of weeks. All those are different ways of defining links among that same population. Once we have kind of decided what the net network we're actually interested in looking at is, you know, whether that's if we're thinking about information transmission, it might be connections of communication. If we're thinking about disease, it's going to be these physical networks. Once we've defined that network, then there's lots of ways of quantifying the, the structure of that network or the pattern of those connections. And those measures range from measures that focus on individuals we think of as like what we call local measures that, that zoom in at just little parts of the network like how many connections does a person have that's what we call in, in network science we call that their degree um, to measure global structure measures like the average degree over the whole network or the variance in degree over the whole network um, some other properties are fit a little bit in between those so there's kind of some mesoscale measurements like one of the things that turns out to be really important in lots of areas is what's known as the clustering coefficient of a person. That turns out to be really important for all kinds of things like innovation and problem solving and also for contagion. Um, so those are just a handful of the things that we think about. So it's, it's so interesting to me that when you've talked about this, you've been describing these networks as being pretty cross-cutting, like something that applies in the social world might apply in the epidemiological world as well. So as an example, like we have this term in social media when something goes viral and it spreads through a community. Um, what is that like? And is that conceptually any different from actual spread of disease? That is a m more complicated question than it sounds like, I think. The, <laughs> um, so in some ways it's similar. In we think about a video or um, a marketing message or a rumor going viral. And in, in many ways, it is the same thing as the way that a disease would spread, the virus would spread. Um, you know, it's transmitted socially, it goes from person to person, it basically traverses the edges of these networks, the links where a disease, um, the what defines the link is different. But once you've kind of figured out what the 
what the network is um, in, in the same way that two people who come into contact a cold from go from one person to another, you know, I can share a piece of information with my social contacts and then they can kind of quote, become infected with that information and share it with uh, their social contacts and so on and so forth. And in the early days of thinking about going viral and viral marketing and everything, people really took this analogy with disease spread very seriously and applied exactly models of disease spread to understanding this and that gave them insights and um, ideas about strategies if you were going to try to get something to spread. Um, later on, our thinking about this has become a lot more nuanced and we have realized that that analogy can only go so far because basically, I mean, people make decisions. And so we're not just, uh, it's not just like I, um, you know, I hear that, like say my friend uh, starts smoking. I don't just think like, oh yeah, that sounds cool. Maybe I'll start smoking. You know, mm -hmm. I, um, there's, a, it's a, the mechanism for how things are transmitted is a little bit different. And because we're rational and we are, while we're subject to peer pressure, peer pressure works in different ways than just um, a virus does. And so a lot of the, one of the things that I focus on somewhat in my research is understanding what happens if we kind of ramp up the sophistication of the cognitive decision-making of the agents in these networks. And this is where kind of what I was getting back to earlier when I was talking about the value of mathematical models is because some of the things that seem totally intuitive about how contagion should work, that intuition is built up from our thinking about physical contagions. But when you switch to a model of something that's like a little bit more sophisticated in terms of the uh, rationality of the actors that are involved, the predictions can become like totally the opposite. And so all of our intuition for what you should do if you're trying to get something to spread might be completely wrong <laughs> if you don't build a mathematical model that says, whoa, wait a second, that's not the right way to do things. Do you have an example of something like that where when you translate it from epidemiology into social science or vice versa, it completely changes the relationship you would see in the network? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I'll give you two examples. So um, one example is that in in terms of a network, when you're thinking about a virus spreading, basically the more connections that you have, the more contact you have between people, the more it's going to spread. It's going to spread more quickly, it's going to spread more easily, and it's going to spread farther. Um, that's not actually necessarily true for social contagions. There are situations where having more connections could actually inhibit the, the spread of something, um, which is counterintuitive. You would think more connections, more spread should be the same. Um, but that's not always true. And the other thing is when I, I mentioned this thing, the clustering coefficient, um, like, so that's kind of how many of, of my friends are friends with each other. Well, in terms of disease spread, um, clustering tends to slow down the spread of a disease. And the reason why is that you, you, it kind of creates, if you think of this closed triangle, you're, you're, the disease is spreading out from the central node, but the, that edge that goes between my two friends who, are both friends with me, that's a redundant edge in terms of getting something, a virus to spread. Because if, if I infect those two people, then now I've got two already infected people both, both talking to each other. They're, they're already infected, so that, that edge isn't doing me any, any 
good or, or bad if you're thinking about trying to stop something from spreading. Mm. So the more that okay. things are clustering, then the less spread would take place because, um, because it's sort of like contained. It's like a contained exactly. contagion. It keeps it kind of trapped in like a little local area. Mm. But if for social phenomenon, uh, lots of times we need kind of like reinforcement. We need to hear something over and over again before we're going to take an action. You know, I, I, I might need somebody to, to but back to that smoking example, like um, if kind of like all my friends start smoking and I'm hearing it over and over, like then I might finally give in and say like, okay, yeah, let's just go for it. Um, or a better example, maybe, you know, buying a product or something if I'm hearing about over and over again, just how awesome this new technology is. Um, the first person who tells me I may not run out and buy it, but if I hear it over and over again, then I'm much more likely to, to take that action. So that clustering reinforces those messages and makes it actually easier for things to spread. Mm -hmm. For some of these social phenomenon, the tipping point is more in terms of what we call a critical mass. So that is something will, just because something is like a good product or a catchy video, doesn't mean it's going to take off. You know, that's kind of the analogy of something that's a very infectious virus. Um, but for those, pro even those very infectious ideas or products to take off, sometimes you have to get somehow kind of get an initial startup population of adopters of that product or that idea in order to kind of get the snowball process going. And so um, we're real viruses don't have that critical mass, just like a few initial people being affected is enough to take off. Um, for products, you have to, or, or messages or social phenomenon of any kind, in some ways, you have to kind of have some external force that pushes you across this initial tipping point in terms of number of, number of initial kind of adopters or infected people. And, and that might be where the decision making comes in as the difference between these two models is you're trying to have people make a decision about like, let's say some sort of product, whereas a, a real physical virus doesn't really care what your <laughs> decision is about it. So that's why you might need more people at the outset, like influencers or something like that. Well, it really relates to this um, thing, thing I mentioned earlier about reinforcement. So um, for a product or an idea or something like that to spread, lots of times we have to hear that message multiple times and if initially there's just so few people who are kind of on board then the likelihood of any individual person kind of getting multiple reinforcing signals is too low and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. we have to get that initial sort of startup population of people to so that we can create enough kind of reinforcing signals to get things to get the ball rolling so to speak um, whereas with the virus you only need one person to get you sick right um, yeah. and kind of mathematically, if we think about it, like each contact you have with an infected person from a virus, for a virus, it's the likelihood of that infecting you is, is independent of how many previous contacts you've had before. Like every time you shake someone's hand who's got a cold, it's just like another roll of the die to see whether or not you get sick. But it doesn't matter if you mm -hmm. happen to get lucky the last four times, the fifth time you're just taking another risk all over again. Yeah. Whereas with um, a product, you know, if someone recommends it to me the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fact that that fifth person is recommending it to me, there are four other people before them, that really increases the likelihood that that fifth contact makes a difference. And so that mm. lack of independence is what kind of drives the difference between those two types of contagions. So for, for a physical virus, the likelihood that you would 
contract the virus is kind of the same every time you interact with a new person. Whereas with social networks, it might be that the more you're interacting with something, the more likely you are to continue interacting with it in the future, or the more likely you are to buy something, right? And so it's this repeated interaction with something that really drives a difference in how these models work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That and sense. we kind of have like a term for these two classes of contagions. We call the disease type contagions, we call those simple contagions. And mm. um, the, the sort of threshold model contagion we call a, a complex contagion. Sociologist Damon Santola came up with that. Mm. So we've talked about a lot of the science behind how we understand social networks and how we understand networks in other contexts like in epidemiology. And I'm wondering if you have any words of hope or wisdom that can really help us to encounter the current circumstances as they are in a way that's going to help us be as effective in mitigating the spread as possible. Yes. Uh, so I think that one of the things that we have going for us is that in the past uh, 15 years, maybe there has been a lot of work in network science. We, there wasn't a kind of a field called network science before that. Um, and now like, we know a lot about contagion and we know a lot about how social networks work. And we have done, and even more so in the past, say, you know, five or 10 years with the, all, everything that's happened with the internet and mobile devices and so forth, we have so much more data. We, there's really amazing work being done where people are actually, you know, uh, I mean, there's privacy concerns that have to be balanced and have people think very carefully about, but, you know, tracking people's movements and we can really understand exactly how, what these contact networks tend to look like. And all of that data and science and theory that's been developed has taught us a lot about what we can do to try to contain the spread of a disease like this. And so, um, you know, when we turn to the people who have that expert knowledge, they, they have good advice. There's good policy advice out there. Um, and that policy advice is applicable from the level of the country, you know, to we're thinking about governors who are making policy advice, but also to, you know, business owners and community leaders. Um, there are things that like, let's say you are a company, a small company that's, you know, your, your state says, okay, it's time to open back for business. Um, there's a whole bunch of things you can, steps, strategies you can take within your factory or your restaurant or your small business to, to try to, to help protect your employees and help protect your community that are informed by all this research that has been going on. And uh, my former postdoc mentor, uh, Scott Page, who's a professor at the University of Michigan has put together a really cool website where he has taken a lot of the science and distilled it down in a way that's very readable and actionable um, and made this kind of guide to strategies for organ organizational leaders to combat the spread of the coronavirus in their own organizations and kind of go step by step for how they can do contact tracing just within their own company in a really basic but a highly effective way. So I think that, um, that's a sliver of hope is that we actually we actually do know how to stop this we just have to actually do it this is really a really fun and interesting conversation i definitely learned a lot about how this is spreading and something i found really interesting about this conversation was getting a better understanding of the similarities and the differences between how we can understand social networks and how sort of psychological phenomena might arise from social networks and how that in some ways does mirror something like the coronavirus spread as well as 
a lot of the things that really separate those two concepts and how we can better understand what makes a physical virus different and what are we doing to maximize our chance of getting our hands around this thing, I think is a really interesting discussion topic. And so I'm really glad that we were able to go over that. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think that that um, I'm excited about that area too. And, you know, there's so many more things that we could chat about, but there's also a lot of social phenomenon spreading around coronavirus too, like misinformation about what you should be doing. Um, and the spread of the acceptability of wearing a face mask in public is a social phenomenon that has to spread side by side with the um, actual spreading of the disease. And so there's just like a ton of things that this unfortunate <laughs> um, event kind of shed, brings all these topics into the forefront. I think. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, and we really so appreciate your time. That was really Absolutely. good. Yeah. Nice chatting with you guys. Take it easy. Stay yeah. safe.